Part 3. Case Study. One Man's Memoir. In the year 1858, settlers first arrived in Carlisle, Kansas. Together, they raised a quiet and, for a time, prosperous community. In 1865, another group of settlers arrived in search of a new life on the plains after the devastation of the American Civil War. Among them was Howard Henley. Howard would go on to become the husband of Nanny Henley, the town doctor, and would spend his days listening for calls for his wife through the speaking tube they had installed in their home. The speaking tube was a metal air pipe that ran from the bedroom to the front door with a mouthpiece on each end, allowing patients to come calling for medical treatment at any hour. Through the tube and through their presence in the close-knit community, the Henleys became well-loved in Carlisle. This week on That Be Revival, we hear an account of life given by Mr. Henley on his deathbed. When Howard came down with an unbreakable fever, word quickly spread throughout the town. Many grateful residents visited Howard on his final night, and it was his last request that for the time they sat with him, the visitors put his words to paper. And so it was that he produced a memoir, written in several hands, but all in the voice of a man who had seen an exciting, enriched life on the plains. A life that ended where we begin, on November 1st, 1895. You comfortable? Have everything you need? No need to write that, just trying to remember my manners. Anyway, uh, how does one do this? You see, I'm a listening man. I always have been that way. So I enjoyed when the voices would come in the speaking tube and call Nanny to action. She enjoyed it too. Oh, we lived an exciting life, I'd say. The details get foggy, but right now I feel it is worth telling. Yes, I'd say I've done about enough listening for my life. And if at any time you found answer to your woes and speaking to me and Nanny, then maybe I'll find comfort in you listening to me now. If, of course, there is any to be found, it probably isn't something rustled up by wrestling with it on your lonesome. There are a few things I've found best doing on your own. When a boy comes into owning his first horse, he and that beast must for a time be alone. That's one, if they are to understand each other at all. But, as I've found, it's really more about understanding yourself. Who was it? That preacher that came through town several years back? He said something of the like. But I suppose this story ain't about him. It was my pa who showed me. Must have been about 
seven or eight years of age, don't know which. Our farm did well, but sometimes animals come and go as they please. Pa said, animals felt God and landmarks, but the landmarks never stayed in the same place. That's why you see them wandering around like lost souls. If you've seen a flock without a shepherd, you know what I'm talking about. That listless sauntering. Anyway, a horse got loose. Maybe it was me who left the paddock gate open, but I surely don't remember. My folks were real gentle about this, didn't throw up their hands, uh, but didn't sit on them neither. One Sunday I was sitting by the barn in the morning. There was dew on my shoes and you could hear the morning doves in the trees. My pa comes by and says he's got something to show me. We walk out past the edge of our land to an open pasture and there's a few horses out there just grazing don't belong to nobody. Horses are awful large anyway, and I was just a tiny thing then, so I could see over the grass and worry about how many ways you could die by this beast. And I reckon that's the first I ever thought of something like that. In a flash, Pa had that rope on the beast. He had done this so many times he didn't think a wink about it. The horse reared up, and my pa stood his ground and pulled down, and they had a little argument between the two of them. My pa called to me, and I ran over, and I took the rope. My hands couldn't keep it tight, and I tripped over myself, but I wasn't thinking. I was in excitement. We pulled the horse back to the farm, and it fought us every step, but we fought right back. My pa said it was about respect. That whole afternoon, we were in the paddock, pulling that horse around, going left when it went right and down when it went up, feeling the rope straining against not one, but both of us. And when the sun went down, nobody had any energy left to move. Not even that horse. Though I'm sure its muscles still had pole left in them. It didn't jump the fence, it didn't charge us, it just looked at us and knew us, and we knew it. I still had the rope in my hands connected to it. Wasn't pulling, but the threads were softly swaying with its breath. The air smelled of salt from both our sweat pooling up in my clothing and its mane. Plenty of things are grand and mysterious when we are small when our eyes can only see the wonder in them. When we grow up, those things stay the same size and the wonder goes away. But some things, uh, some things grow with us. There's something about horses that make me think of my own children. Feeble beings, children. Well, they ain't feeble anymore. Nanny and I, the proud parents of three non-feeble adults, all grown and gone off on their own. 
They had the blood of their mother running through their veins. Dancing blood. Blood that makes them want to spread far and wide away from Carlisle and away from family. Our middle-born, Pearl. Oh, Pearl. Our Pearl had a fondness for locomotives. Maybe more than a fondness and a obsession. She'd tap me awake many nights when she heard the train coming in just to tell me what type of locomotive it was by the sound of the wheels and the horn. She knew them all by heart. In those days, the railroad was coming up through Carlisle and Pearl was coming up in our house. Pearl and the rails grew together, you might say. Lots of folks coming through town every day with big ideas, big plans. One, who we just called Professor, he had with him an invention, some confounded contraption that to this day I don't understand the function of. Professor said he was gonna make a thousand dollars. Another man more tied to my life, by the name of Eustace P. Hornsquad, took a shine to our pearl. I'll never forget the day on the station platform they both left. Said they were headed off towards San Francisco, a place that had a tiny train to take you place to place around town. Well, you can see why that appealed to little Pearl. The train, it pulled off, chugging along out into the distance, and our youngest little Linus tried to follow it for a bit, but he got tired and ain't nobody can run as fast as a train. Linus, well, he's in Texas now as part of a freak show, but at the time before he departed, I had said to him, one could sooner catch the smoke coming off the stack than chase down the train, drifting up into the heavens in that great wafting billow. Sometimes Pearl would see shapes in it, pictures forming and then dissolving as soon as they came. She said that's how clouds were made, all the trains going where they needed to. I didn't bother to tell her that didn't make a lick of sense, and maybe that was a mistake in parenting on my part as her obsession with trains ultimately led her far away to false promises. But one scarcely has time for these regrets. We waved about till our arms fell off till we could see no more trains. Then, of course, Linus tried running after it again, but I stopped him this time. Oh, Pearl. Left us with only a note that Linus found on the dresser when we returned home. A father always understands when his daughter leaves a note reading, If I go, maybe I'll be a cloud too. And to this day, I'd jump out of bed at the chance to take a look at the midday clouds painted across the sky in hopes that one of them just happens to look like my pearl, shot out a smokestack and spread across the heavens.
Nanny always saw fit the kids felt free of heart. And let me whisper you a little secret of the past. She felt herself that way, too. Sure, you might know her as a woman of science, a rationalist, but the best darn dancer you ever met in your whole life. That was the first way in which I saw her. The spin of a dress hem going through my eyes straight down to my heart. The whole town, new as it was, came out under the arching roof at Daniel's barn, the first we raised. Fell down within its first fortnight, but that evening, we all danced under it. Felt as though the wood could hold as long as we and our kin would live to see. Daniel was one of the first men I came to Carlisle with. He had three brothers, but of course, you know Daniel. Oh, the dancing, the dancing that night. I didn't much know how to dance myself. Wasn't something I'd practiced in my time. But Nanny was quite the opposite. Looked as if she'd danced her way from a ballet straight to a bar. Something about a man who could barely keep the rhythm alive, attracted to a woman so fond of keeping things alive, just seemed right. We started with some genteel music, but things got rowdy, and though her feet were moving faster than a horse at full gallop, they did not make a sound. I took her hand, and she was spinning and twirling, and I let her go, and she just spun off to the center of the bomb, floating up all on her own, as if she was walking on air, gliding well above our heads as though it was the simplest thing in the world to be up there. The frills of her dress seemed to weigh nothing at all, cascading in a swirl so light it could stay aloft till the sun came up. I never seen a woman fly before that. Ain't seen one do it since. There was even birds up there in the rafters, had to get out of her way. God's creatures just up there with her flying together. Irma Ranville spilled her whiskey when she ducked to keep from getting kicked in the head. Now, not that Nanny would ever do that. And I kept getting worried she was going to float right up to the top of the roof and knock herself unconscious, but I knew she had control over her flight. It was clear she'd done this before. Some of the more upright folk yelled witch at her, but that made most of us other dancers just laugh and laugh. was I talking about? Oh, Nanny. Two nights later on June 18th, the stress of making something of this settlement was just too much to take, and I came ill and called upon Daniel to see if he knew of any friends skilled in the art of healing. And would you believe it that not an hour later, Nanny levitated into my home. <clears throat> the case of Edgar Sorensen. 
Everyone in Carlisle knew Sorensen was like a corpse left out in the sun. Hard to say if the rot started on his skin or in his soul. I had never seen a drink. <clears throat> I had never seen a man drink more brandy at church than Edgar Sorensen on Palm Sunday. His figure was slim, but he wore clothes far too large to hide just how skeletal he was. He was as upright as a Virginia fence. Hell, we knew it was bad, but it wasn't until the summer of 1886 that the truth came out. A sad thing, too. Once you fall down too many times, it's hard to get used to standing again. You make sure to remember that. As we brought him inside, word spilled out of him like the blood from his stomach. He had stumbled onto the old milliner property when Ma Milliner, rifle in hand, caught him. God knows what he was thinking. The details of one man's motives or another's gets lost after so much time has passed. When you treat a no-account who's gotten into a scrape, it's usually bruising, head pains, maybe incontinence, but that's not something some ice and bergamot and nettle elixir can't cure. But what we didn't know was that under that big overcoat, Edgar's body was rotting. Every night would leave him a bit cut up, but rather than coming to bother Nanny and me, he'd just splash some brandy on the wounds to curb the infection. Well, brandy can only last so long, and by and by, Edgar had built up a tolerance to not only alcohol, but also to the pain he should have been in. When Ma Milliner shot that rifle, her pony kicked him. And when it did, it was like pressing a finger into a rotten apple. Edgar, in a pool of his own blood, his already skeletal form dented like the apple, and near collapsing around that core. Our candles burned all the way down that night. He screamed in agony into the speaking tube, and called on Nanny and I for the first time in his misbegotten life. The first sight we got of his caved-in stomach was far from the worst. Much like a drought that surely leads to a great fire, all this built-up torment and sin was surely headed for collapse. And when Nanny's stitching hand made first contact with that wound, oh, it wilted right in front of her. The muscle below the skin shriveled and fell away like some devil flower. Blooming inwards, it gave way until we saw straight through to the operating table. The curls of the tendons easing up like so many springs unwinding. Some gave way easy and some snapped and cracked, each wanting to be the last to hold out. But. No part of Edgar could stand up to the stress, and the blood pouring in, filling the hole as it formed like oil rushing out of a newly struck well. This was a living thing, it growing and weakening and dying all at once, turning to dust, just like the land. 
his flesh a flower, baked in the sun and ready to be taken by the wind. It took all Nanny had to let it be, to save our stores for folks that needed it more, had stomachs to hold medicine in. That night changed her. There was nothing we could do, though. His time was coming, and on the way out, someone tried to help him. I told Nanny that no matter what she thought she could or couldn't do, she was all we got. She had grace in her hands. My hands are much better with little jars, needles, mortar, and pestle and the like nowadays, but if you put a muzzle loader in front of me and you wanted me to put it together, uh, I could probably do it, even here in this bed, though I'm not much proud of that. I remembered days that would start with an orange, smeary sun, and we were camped by a river and talking quietly, and the water would just shine in this beautiful greenish gold like there was treasure just glittering at the bottom. Then by the end of the day, there was no camp, or if there was, you'd have to take it down with fewer hands than when you'd started, and you'd want to talk to someone or cry but you couldn't say anything or make a sound, and the sky was blue somewhere, but that was out over a cloud of gray, all from the smoke. You ever seen something like that? You ever smell it? I was in Pennsylvania somewhere, lying in a thicket with Bill Piper, waiting. It was a cold morning, and you could feel it, but the uniforms they had us in were warm enough. Wool soaks up the blood, too. But they weren't thinking about that when they made them. I had this little verse I'd say to myself. What time I am afraid I will trust in thee. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. And I was muttering that for a little while. And there was a great noise. <laughs> I'd forgot about the cannons. And then my face was wet and I asked for Bill, but he was face down and the back of his head was. I tried not to think about what them bullets could do, as heavy as they were. And then I didn't need to think anymore. I saw. I was up and running, but I don't know where, further down into the grass, down into a ditch, not backwards, into the trees. I might have been yelling, and then I remembered that was foolish that they'd find me out, so I shut up, but I was still breathing heavy. I hid under a rock, and I could see boys going down all around me. This was when they stopped fighting war, standing in straight lines, marching forward and shooting. Nobody was given direction. It started to rain, but from under this great ugly rock, you couldn't tell. Then somebody fell down in the mud patch in front of me, spat down from the sky. Well, I clapped a hand over my mouth, but I think he heard it. And when he got up, he looked at me. And this boy, 
He didn't know what to do. Maybe he worked in a print shop when he was young. I don't think he knew how to use his rifle since he fumbled all over with it as he was bringing it up. It was a miracle he hadn't gone off and blowed himself up with it when he fell. I got my rifle up faster and fired and I don't know if I hit him or not. I secretly prayed I missed. I scare that boy enough but he keeps coming. And then I'm stuck and I just run out from under that rock and I tackle him. Then we're down in the mud. Then I can hear it squishing under my boots, under my knees. He's yelling underneath me and then I'm somewhere else. And I can hear everything going on, but my face is in the mud and we're just pushing each other around. We are sinking in. The world's slipping away into the mud and we fall through and right into this new one just as thick, sinking just as fast. Fighting farther and farther down through so many fields of mud and slop. I find my foot in and I hoist myself up to hold him down. I can see boot prints in the mud, but it's raining harder now and they're sliding apart. The boy's slapping at my face and making little sounds and I'm pushing him. So far he's a layer below, maybe seeing straight into the next one and fighting me off like he don't want to fall in. Finally he stops that and he starts to kicking at me. I can't hear him anymore, but I can feel the rain and the ash coming down, and and I think of Bill Piper, and I start to cry. And you aren't supposed to, but how can I not? My ears are ringing, and I see a man shouting at me, but his words are false. I can't understand them. His hand fights up and in his fingers curl there's a shape that forms and then dissipates and drifts up in the sky in the frills of a dress just hanging in the air. It comes together and it shrinks and the tendons and the muscle fibers snap and wilt and collapse down through the mud. I'm holding on a thread of it. And in that thread I can feel the movement on the other end. White, waxing and waning, soft breaths, but because I'm holding the rope, I can even feel the tiniest twitch, even the simplest sign of life. I can feel that it'll keep moving, whatever direction it's headed. Those movements just keep on going. I think we'll all start to see where it's headed not too long from now. Things don't just keep moving forward without us one day finally getting a sense of what landmarks they see on the horizon. The rise and fall of the ribcage just slightly vibrating in my hands. That beast looking at me and letting go of the wild. It wants to stamp in place. Make the soft dirt of the paddock into deep mud so you can slip and fall in it. Get sucked down to that mudder. Pull yourself up with that rope. But either way, 
Letting go ain't a choice you want to make. Something made sense in that rope. We're looking dead straight at each other, but we're seeing a reason in things. A good one. One worth growing for. Now God won't break you if you ain't looking to be broke. If you see it the way I'm seeing it, things are fixing to get a whole lot better. Just a matter of all holding on to one thing. Don't matter what that thing is, in it you'll feel each other and understand each other. And it'll all make some sort of sense. You scribbled all that. You don't have to keep up with that pen. You can set it down now. That ink won't dry up just yet, and I reckon that might be enough talking for a while. I don't know what I'd say next. It's all right. We're nice people, and you are good at heart. Mr. Henley has stopped speaking. be revival. The board's a moanin' underfoot. to download our weekly newsletter. In it, you'll find photographs, documents, and other materials on this week's topic that we couldn't fit in the episode. Thank you for listening.